0: You are listening to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. We are so honored to have two guests who are expert in this field, Chris Henning and Laura Cohen. Our first guest, Professor Henning, is the author of a new book, The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. I was very fortunate to have received a copy of this book before it was released. So my gratitude and thanks goes to Lisa Pally from the Miami Book Fair. This book fair is the oldest, largest collection of literati and the fair will be hosting its 39th season this November. It draws 250,000 book lovers and authors, from all over the world. Chris Henning is the Bloom Professor of Law and Director of the Juvenile Justice Clinic and Initiative at Georgetown Law, where she and her students represent youth accused of delinquency in Washington, DC. She was the lead attorney for the juvenile unit of the DC Public Defender Service. Currently, she is Director of the Mid-Atlantic Juvenile Defender Service. She has been awarded the Juvenile Leadership Prize by the Juvenile Law Center. Welcome, Chris, to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. Happy to be here. And
0: <laughs> That's great. On this podcast, my listeners know that I have a strong affinity for young people, having spent 30 years of my life teaching children in grades K through 8 with learning disabilities. but It is a whole different story when we think about children caught up in our justice system. Chris, you have advocated for kids for over 25 years, representing those accused of crimes in Washington, D.C. Did working with children
1: inspire you to write the book? Oh, absolutely. Um, It's hard to do this work for as long as I have like you said you know 26 years without really just wanting to give voice to so much of what I was seeing or still see um, in the courts and with the young people that I represent and you know I wanted to give voice to the ways in which black children are criminalized for normal adolescent behaviors um I wanted to give voice to the trauma that Black children experience when they feel like they are over-policed. And when I say over-policed, I don't just mean by police in a blue uniform, but also by all of us civilians. I call that policing by proxy, Mm -hmm. right? When we see a Black child and are afraid of them. So absolutely doing this work has inspired me to to write this book.
0: That's, That's wonderful. Well, the book has so much to say. And we're going to try to do the best we can with, uh, you know, asking you about what you have written. Along with a host of statistics and research, what stood out to me were the stories that you tell to drive a point home. One statistic states kids with a learning disability make up between 30 to 85 percent of incarcerated youth you mentioned black youth with autism will be arrested more often than white youth with the same diagnosis. To illustrate this point, would you tell us about Kwame and is it Stefan? Is that how he says it? Yeah.
1: Um, so, so, you know, Kwame um, is the best, you know, sort of story to tell from, you know, personal experience in Washington, D.C. You know, he was a young child who um, clearly had significant learning disabilities. And he was, at the time I represented him, was being evaluated for autism. But the, 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 the doctors suspected that he was autistic. And he, uh, one day was, uh he, was turnstile jumping, which uh, for those of you who don't know what that means, it's just entering the public metro, um, entering a public subway without paying the fare, right? Something that, you know, teenagers do, right? Whether, you know, we agree with it or not, it's what teenagers do. And one officer walked up to him and he immediately knew that he was in the wrong. And he put his hands uh, behind his back as if he were in cuffs, right? <laughs> he immediately knew he was in the wrong. And you know, so the officer walked up to him and you know began to talk to him, you know, pretty quietly. And things were going fine. Then all of a sudden, a second officer walks up onto the scene and touches my client on the shoulder, and my client just completely sort of flipped out. Um, he even banged his own head on the turnstile, and you know, he just began. And to sort of scream and holler and react in a way that the officers themselves knew that something was a little off, but they didn't know what, right? They weren't trained in, in how to deal with this. And what um, we discovered when I met his guardian, who is his biological aunt, we realized that he just um, um, completely sort of became scared and paralyzed, and that some of his Uh, cognitive limitations, his executive functioning limitations, his disability, it sort of exacerbated what is already a quite frightening circumstance for many young people of color. And so during the course of representing uh, Kwame, i and Kwame is what I call him for purposes of the book, um, Mm -hmm. but I met with an expert a speech and language expert who really just helped me understand why it is that um, young people like Kwame um, react in the way that they do. And what I learned is that many people with speech and language disabilities um, and executive functioning disabilities need um, instructions told to them one at a time. You know, brush your teeth. All right. Now, you know, put on your shirt. Now put on your pants. Okay, now wash your face. Now, you know. um, And so the rapid fire encounters that that young people often have with the police are not at all like that. You know, stop, freeze, put your hands up. you know, put your hands behind your back, sit down on the you know, stoop, whatever it is, is very frightening and, and really difficult for for many folks to follow. Similarly, like with regard to other speech or with speech and language dis, uh, disorders, for example, um, young people have a hard time answering the WH questions, who, what, where, when, why, right, that are very commonly asked by police officers to young people. Where are you going? Where are you coming from? Why did you not pay? Those kinds of things Mm -hmm. are very intimidating. And then the final example of that is that um, many sort of young people with um, uh, with disabilities, not, you know, it just depends with autism in particular, you know, have a uh, sensory deficit um, complications, right? Meaning that loud noises, loud sounds, or or touching, okay, so I should say loud noises, bright lights, and touching, physical contact are very terrifying um, and disorienting for, um, for, for children. So again, think about my story with Kwame, an officer walks up to him, Rapidly, out of nowhere, puts his hand on his shoulder and just completely, you know, throws our client off kilter. So that's in part why you see that so many young people with disabilities have difficulty navigating a an encounter with the police. Mm-hmm. And then when they have these sort of moments of reacting um you combine that with implicit racial bias and those behaviors um, are often misread as threatening and aggressive um, because of the stereotypes and assumptions that we have about Black children. So that's in part why you see in the school system, for example, Black children in particular um, with disabilities, and Latino children with disabilities are far more likely to be arrested in schools than um, children without disabilities and white children in general. Right.
0: Well, another story, I do love your stories. Um, some of them I knew, many of them I did not. Another story you cite is that of 14 year old Brennan Walker from Michigan who did a very innocuous thing. What right. did he do?
1: yeah. so Brennan, you know, um walked up <laughs> was new to the neighborhood. Let's be clear. He had just moved there. He and his family had been there, you know, one week, maybe in two weeks at the most. He had learned to walk to school. He was walking to school one morning, eight o'clock in the morning, and actually got turned around. He got lost trying to get to school. And so what does he do? An innocent, you know, child walks up to, Uh, Someone's door. And he even sees a sticker that says neighborhood watch. Mm -hmm. And he walks up to the door. And he knocks on the door just to get some instruction. The woman who um, approaches the door <clears throat> sees him, a young Black kid, and begins to scream and say, why are you trying to rob us? Um, <laughs> at yes, eight
0: o'clock in the morning. <laughs> eight
1: o'clock in the morning, right? Kid with a book bag. I mean, it's just, you know, so disturbing. Um, her husband, who was upstairs at the time, um, hears her his wife screaming and comes running down the stairs opens the door, runs out onto the porch and begins to fire a weapon at him Um, as he is um, running away uh, for his life. um, You know, Brennan gets uh, a few blocks away, breaks down crying, calls, you know, his mother um, and it's just tragic, right? And so police officers arrive and it clearly was just a moment where a kid doing what a kid does and the automatic assumption Automatic assumption is that the kid is trying to commit a crime instead of a kid who needs help. And that's a function, you know, Harriet, of how our implicit biases work.
0: Right. That's right. And that that to me is a classic story. I remember hearing it on the news and and thinking, what were they thinking? Right. The people who own the, the house, you know so those were good examples um and then um you begin your book with a story about a teen named eric
1: right so that's another
0: story you want to share that with us
1: Sure. I mean, that's sort of the quintessential um, story I give to explain, to really, you know, open the book for everyone. This is like the first page of the book. Right. <laughs> you know, I tell about, you know, my client, Eric, who was a 13 year old boy who on a Saturday night was was watching a movie and he sees someone with a Molotov cocktail, and he says to himself, oh, that looks cool. Let me see if I can make something that looks like that. He doesn't research it. He doesn't ask anybody what's in a Molotov cocktail. He just goes into the kitchen and he grabs a glass bottle and he begins to pour in whatever liquids he can find, bleach, pine saw, you know, these are water soluble, you know, items that are not going to, you know, catch up and blow anything up. And my favorite part of the story is that he takes a piece of toilet paper and he (laughs) runs the toilet paper from the inside of the bottle to the out and he puts the cap on it. Uh, And we know that this toilet paper is going to burn out before it, right. you know, even reaches the cap. And so, you know, he's thirteen. he plays with it, and then he forgets all about it. It's a Saturday night. He puts it in his book bag. um and and really does. just forget all about it. Um, Monday morning comes, his mother drives him to school and he puts his book bag through the metal detector right at his school. Um, and an officer, the school resource officer sees it and asks him, hey, what is this? To which he immediately responds, oh, that is nothing. You can throw it away. Um, he goes on to class, doesn't think anything about it. Little does he know this is the beginning of a nine month ordeal in the local courthouse because he gets arrested. He gets um, the, the fire department shows up. The, the police department shows up. He gets dragged out of class, arrested. Nobody gives him the benefit of the doubt when he says over and over again, you know, it was just a toy. I wasn't, you know, trying to blow up the school. Um, and, you know, he got held in detention and, and prosecuted for this um, over a course of nine months. And here, you know, Harriet, here's the here's the hooker. Um, uh, the real hook for this story is that um, a short time later, sometime later, I was giving a talk, um, participating in a conference in Connecticut, and I'm sharing the story as a part of my comments. And a white woman walks up to me after um, uh, after my comments and says, my son did the exact same thing. That's what's so breathtaking. And I say, "What happened to your son?" And she says, "They put him in advanced chemistry classes." So it's just an extraordinary contrast between it my thirteen-year-old African American client, right, and this you know white kid who Connecticut who gets rewarded for being creative and thoughtful and just being a kid.
0: Amazing. Yeah, really. Is so great, great story to illustrate a, a very important point. Let's talk about children prosecuted as adults. That's one of my favorite topics. Here is a t- statistic from your book. Quote, in 2015, at least 75,000 youth under age 18 were prosecuted as adults, a large number of whom were Black. We also learned that Florida, prosecutes, and incarcerates the highest number of children as adults in the nation. The majority, once again, are Black. Just a few weeks ago, there was an opinion piece in the New York Times with the title Trying Minors as Adults Won't Reduce Crime. It was written by Vincent Giraldi and Gladys Carrion. The article talks about alternatives to jail. The authors state that trying more young people in adult courts rather than family courts is associated with more crime, not less among young people. Can you address some of these concepts?
1: Yeah, I mean, starting with the data point, I mean, I've actually read that uh, opinion piece in the New York Times. I, I have extraordinary respect for um, Vincent Chiraldi and Gladys Carrion, who wrote that, both state leaders um, uh, um, on behalf of children. And, you know, the, the, the number one point is that Black youth are 8.6 times more likely to be held in an adult um, correctional facility than white youth, right? Um, so the extraordinary racial disparity is 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 just profound. Um, and it speaks to, and I talk about this in the book as well, the ways in which we dehumanize black children even when they make mistakes. So let's be clear that the first um, the the Eric example um, mm-hmm. that I gave you, involves normal adolescent behavior, to be quite frank, which should not have been criminalized for any child, but the racial disparity is evident. Just the criminalization of normal adolescent behaviors. What we're talking about when we talk about transferring children to adult court is often, indeed, the child did commit a crime, but not always, Khalif Browder is an example, <laughs>
0: but I, I was going to ask you about him in a little bit. Right. <laughs> okay, okay,
1: we could talk about him too. Yeah, but, not, but but let's just assume that we're talking about kids who do commit crimes. The okay. research shows that children are less culpable for their behaviors um, because we know so much more about the adolescent brain than we ever did before. We know that children. Are, um, are are impulsive and reactive, um, sensation seekers. They're heavily influenced by their peers sure. and other adults. And so they do things, they make mistakes during these adolescent years. And sometimes those mistakes have really bad outcomes. They might even hurt someone, all right? But that is a product of normal adolescent development. And the second piece of it, and this is what you were alluding to about, alternative ways to respond, even when young people engage in behaviors that are dangerous um, and that are harmful. Um, The research shows that because the adolescent brain is still developing, that young people are amenable to rehabilitation and to redirection, and that most children with even community-based interventions, right? Rehabilitative support services um, that are attentive to their mental health, that are attentive to their vocational needs, that are attentive to um, uh, basic uh, fundamental support like education and housing. Those children can be rehabilitated such that they do not need to be in jail and prisons with adults for extended periods of time. And guess what? Um, The research also shows that incarcerating children Um, during those adolescent years is the worst thing we can do um, to healthy adolescent development, the worst thing that we can do for public safety, because we actually increase crime instead of reducing crime. And so we've got it all wrong. And the fact that we managed to get this wrong with Black kids and brown kids says something about how we as society um, really, don't see children, Black children as children. And we see them in ways that are dehumanizing um, and invalidating and excluding them instead of helping them um, and correcting them.
0: The thing I often ask myself, and I, I ask my my guests as well, is if we know these things, and there's so much more, you know, your your topic here uh, and mine is is narrow. We're just talking about Um, uh, black kids in the system. But if we know the things we uncover, you know, that we've learned,
1: why do we keep doing the same thing again and again? There's so many reasons. Such a great (laughs) question. You know, part of it is political, right? You Mm -hmm. get these temporary upticks in crime, which is what we saw in the 1990s. And so you've got the political pressure to make everyone safe, this country has bought into the idea that the only way to keep people safe is with traditional law enforcement punitive responses, arrest, prosecution, and incarceration and incarceration for extended periods of time when we know these things don't work. But it's politically that you win a lot of political gains. Right. Right. By 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 these tough on crime law and order responses, because psychologically people can accept and believe that incarcerating someone must be the best answer. Um, And so I think that's that's part of it. Right. Um, I think also, too, we don't see our children. We don't see ourselves in the children that we lock up, right? And that goes, that speaks directly to this disproportionality, right? We are ready to believe um, back in the 1990s that Black children were super predators beyond redemption, right? We could buy into that because we could not see children, those children as our children. So we were much quicker to believe that they were responsible for all the crime. We were much um, uh, more readily um, willing to send them away for long periods of time um, and not give them the rehabilitative services. And we respond in ways that we would never respond to um, our own children. And just by way of example, think about Kyle Rittenhouse as in a direct contrast. He killed two people. First of all, he he had a gun. He had a gun um, in public and then he killed two people and he severely injured another person. And he, you know, in him, his mother, and rightfully so, his defense attorney wanted the whole world to see him as an adolescent who got in over his head Mm -hmm. and needed to uh, act in self-defense. Right. right? Um, Whereas Tamir Rice, you know, 12 year old child from Cleveland, Ohio, who's playing with a toy gun in a park. Right. Within less than three seconds of police arriving on the scene, he shot dead and killed. It's a radical difference in the ways in which we perceive adolescent behaviors. Right. Huge
0: huge gap. Huge, huge huge
1: gap. gap. Why do we think it's okay for a, a a Kyle Rittenhouse to walk in the street even with a hunting license? First of all, a hunting license doesn't give you the right to walk around a public street, um, you know, and with limited, very very limited experience with any kind of weapon whatsoever, he gets scared because he has no life experience to deal with this and to navigate this. Why does he show up in that location? He showed up because his friends called and said, "Hey, come Help us protect these businesses. I've got your gun waiting for you right here. Um, and we saw that as an adolescent behavior that just went awry. We yeah. never see a black child with a gun as an adolescent peer influence situation that maybe get got out of control. We don't. We never give uh, a black child those kinds of benefits of the doubt and due process. Right. Um, so it's hugely problematic. Yeah,
0: it is. Well, we are almost out of time. But you did say you would come back and talk to us some more, and there's so much more to ask you and to talk about. So I would like you to do that, and uh, I'd like to talk about the impact of of uh, what it's like for kids to be in an adult facility, an adult jail. So we'll we'll start with that next time. So thank you, Chris, for being with us today. You've been listening to Pursuing Justice, and we will have you come back next time and hope our listeners join us as well so see you next time thank you you then thanks for listening to my podcast today you've been listening to pursuing justice on society bites radio and i'm your host harriet